Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible. Now join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith. Why does Jesus commend a dishonest manager? That is a question that we will answer on this episode of Word Matters. As always, I'm Brandon Smith, spokesperson for the CSB, with my co-host, Trevor Wax, the Bible publisher for uh, B&H Publishing, Bible and Reference. I, uh, do we have to say that every time? I feel like we... Do I, do I have to introduce us every single time? We're at like episode 30-something by now. Anyway, yeah, just well, in case. Well, maybe for new, new, newcomers coming. Who well, we've got... Mil- downloading the most recent. Yeah, we've got millions every week, you know, uh, new, <laughs> yeah. new people listening. Hey, so. By the way, I, we never do this, but we should ask people to leave a rating and review yeah, we at, should. at iTunes because it does help us in like the rankings and anyway yeah last, so we last never year, ask people to do that but. yeah that's true last year we got to number two on the podcast charts and almost top joel osteen and we were if we had some more reviews oh, and downloads we could have done it but. i just wasn't thinking positively enough that's true <laughs> Uh, anyway, so we are going to answer uh, the question, why does Jesus commend a dishonest manager? And so we're discussing a parable uh, in Luke 16. Sometimes it's known as the dishonest manager, the shrewd manager, uh, or the unjust steward. Lots of names for it because there's a lots of interpretations for it. So. Yeah, this is a parable that has caused Christians to scratch their heads for a long time now. I mean, we have Christians over the centuries who have become basically bald from scratching their heads <laughs> so much over this one. Okay, uh, And the interpretations are wildly different. I mean... If you guys knew how much research we had to do just to get this narrowed down, Klein Snodgrass, the famous parables scholar, lists 16 primary interpretations. So I'm not even going to be able to categorize them all in this podcast because they diverge so strongly. There are just so many of them. Well, let's go ahead and and see what we can do anyway with what we have. Uh, I'll read the text, uh, Luke 16, 1 to 13 in the CSB. Now he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I am removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe me, my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. And here's how the parable ends. Uh, The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay, so there's the parable uh, and the explanation uh, offered after Jesus tells it. So let's look at some of these different views of, of how we can read this text, how Jesus applies it. Um, let me do the first one here. So uh, the point of this parable uh, in the first view is to teach Christians to be generous to the poor. 
So this is an our interpretation you see early in the Church Fathers, which we always like uh, when we see things in the Church Fathers. Uh, Augustine, for example, sees an application here regarding uh, mercy ministry. Uh, but he also said that Jesus didn't intend for us to imitate uh, the manager in every way. So the point is that um, you got an example of the power of money when distributed freely. So what does it look like when you give money away? Uh, and a variation of this perspective uh, goes something like this. The manager uh, receives praise because of his shrewdness, his wisdom and his dealings, not because of his dishonesty, because of his, his shrewdness. Uh, he takes action in light of the judgment that is coming, and that kind of wisdom, uh, the, being wise and taking action, is what Jesus is really commending here. So that's what Jesus expects of people who know the kingdom of God is near. They're, they're going to act quickly uh, to the coming judgment. So the application is this. If a dishonest manager realizes that the coming judgment uh, means to be radical with his wealth, uh, then how much more should believers believe in the coming kingdom and the radical nature of their wealth, how to be radical with their wealth? Good. Okay, so view number two comes from one of my favorite commenters on the parables, Kenneth Bailey. He actually, I think he, was it last year that he died? I hope so. Or we just started uh, one of those rumors where somebody no, finds out they're dead no, and they're alive. I know, I, know, <laughs> I know he died because I I did a lot of my, my um, undergraduate work on the parables and relied on him a lot. And I remember when the news came out that he died recently. But uh, he takes the position that all of these contracts that the master had with the people in the community would have been public. So the manager wanted to put the master in a tough spot. If he rejected the reduced debts, he would anger the debtors. If he accepted the fact that the manager reduced the debts, then he would be praised by everyone in the community. So here's what's going on here. The manager recognizes that the master is deep down a merciful and wise man. And so he takes this approach of reducing all the debts as a way of risking everything on the master's mercy. And the application here would be then to entrust everything to God's mercy. You know the kind of master you have, and so you act wisely. So here's something Here's something Bailey says. He says, one of the Old Testament definitions of wisdom is an instinct for self-preservation. In a backhanded way, the actions of the steward are a compliment to the master. The steward knew the master was generous and merciful. He risked everything on this aspect of his master's nature. He won. Because the master was indeed generous and merciful, he chose to pay the full price for his steward's salvation. The steward is praised for his wisdom, his skillfulness, and self-preservation. He is sensitive to the hopelessness of his situation. He is aware of the one source of salvation, namely the generosity of the master. That's a good, good explanation of that view, for sure. All right, view number three. Uh, this says that Jesus is depicting himself in the actions of the manager. Uh, so, you know, after all, this pa parable does come right after Luke 15, where Jesus is defending his actions against the Pharisees, right? Uh, so in a way, the shepherd who goes after the lost sheep, uh, the woman who searches for the lost coin, the father who welcomes back his prodigal son, all those uh, parables there, uh, these are all defenses of what Jesus is doing in his ministry. So since this parable follows right after, uh, right after those, some say that it's better to see Jesus in the role of the manager. So the scribes and Pharisees uh, believe that Jesus is being too radical with his grace, too radical, right, with dispensing forgiveness. Uh, he's squandering the inheritance of the religious leaders. Uh, but Jesus steps in as God's agent, and he does away with the debts that are owed to God. And so ultimately, the parable is defending Jesus's uh, ministry of amazing, uh, radical, crazy grace. Okay, so there are three interpretations, and if you're listening and we haven't gotten to yours, my apologies. <laughs> there is only so much time in the day, and we aren't writing a whole book about the interpretation of this parable. Not yet. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, so, Brandon, of those three, what is your take? How do you read the parable? Yeah, so uh, on, the, on the front end, I do really like number two. Uh, especially if you go the route of taking this as kind of an interplay between a merciful master and a repentant servant. I like that picture. 
Uh, but ultimately, I'm actually probably going to lean toward number one. I think it makes more sense of Jesus telling his disciples uh, in particular, because he says this, you know, to the disciples, he turns to them, uh, that they're to be good stewards of what they have and what they will have. So um, just kind of thinking through Luke and thinking through the Gospels, um, you know, this is this is a little bit after Luke 12, where Jesus tells his disciples that when he leaves, presumably when he's resurrected and ascends to heaven, uh, that they'll be given responsibility. And there he warns them, don't get antsy, uh, you know, while you wait for me to return. I'm going to come back like a thief in the night. You're not going to know when I'm coming. Uh, don't get caught up uh, in distracting and evil, sinful temptations. Uh, we also see Jesus calling out Pharisees for being poor stewards of their inheritance. That kind of falls into three a little bit um, because it's a, it's a spiritual inheritance, not just a monetary one, right? So so while this parable is obviously about money, I think at some point, um, it seems like Jesus is trying to say um, more about not just the money, but the mission that he's entrusted them with. You know, go and make disciples. And while you're on your way, uh, make sure that you don't get ensnared with other interests like money. Money is going to be one of the things that's going to tempt anybody. Uh, you can't do the work of the kingdom and also chase worldly possessions. So I think he's telling them in some sense, um, don't mess up what you've been given or what I've been giving you to go do, uh, getting caught up in money and other things. Okay. You? Uh, so my, my take on this. I think that was number one. I don't even know if that fit yeah, number one. I, I guess I, it I did. Do. I think it's a variation of number one. Yeah. Um, I, the, let me just say the reason I love the parables of Jesus is because uh, even when you have wildly diverging interpretations— uh, there's a sense in which you could love them all, right? Yeah. Like even even I'm not saying that they're all right and that they're all Jesus's intention because I, I don't think that I don't think that is is appropriate hermeneutically. But I, I love all three of those interpretations for different reasons. Um, I, I don't agree with them all, but let me let me explain what I love about them and then why I'm ultimately going to reject the two that I I don't like. So uh, let's start with the third one: the idea that Jesus is explaining his own actions. Um, I just love the image of Jesus going after the lost sheep, right, that you have in Luke 15, the lost coin, yeah. the prodigal son. And then here you have this image of Jesus canceling debts everywhere and winning glory for the fa- for the master, right, for his father. Mm-hmm. I just, I love the image there. But um, I, I just, at the end of the day, I don't think that squares with the statement in verse two that the master is about to fire the manager. I mean, right. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how, it, it doesn't make sense of God's relationship to Jesus ultimately. Yeah. So. I, that's why I don't go with three, even though I like that image of Jesus, you know, doing this. Uh, the, the second one, Kenneth Bailey's interpretation of throwing himself on the mercy and goodwill of of the master. Um, I love that one because I love the doctrine of justification by faith. I love the thought of this rascal realizing his hopelessness, risking everything on the mercy of his master. Um, and I and I also love like how Kenneth Bailey's commentaries, if you haven't read these uh, listeners, do yourself a favor, buy some of Kenneth Bailey's work. Uh, he always brings this cultural detail to life that makes the parables come alive in a lot of ways. So even though I would go with Bailey on a lot of things, on this one, I, I and even though I love justification by faith alone, I just don't think that that's the main point of this particular parable because it doesn't seem to make sense of the application that Jesus points to after he tells the parable, uh, where he talks about the use of money and riches. So that application that Jesus seems to give, to me, that pushes me back to the traditional view, the, the first view, um, that Jesus is not commending the manager for his dishonesty. What he's doing is he's making a contrast. This is what we call one of those parables that's a how much more parable. You know, yeah. like if a pester judge finally gives justice, how much more will God hear your prayers? You know, if a, if a neighbor wakes up and gives you food in the night, how much more will God help you? You know, so so Jesus's point isn't to give us an example in the dishonest manager, it's to say, look, 
if people of the world act radically with money when the day of judgment is coming, then how much more should followers of Jesus who see the crisis of the coming kingdom of God, how much more should that impact how we deal with our possessions? Okay, so, so to summarize Klein Snodgrass, he, he says, um, the parable is about the wise use of possessions in, in view of the eschatological crisis. Wisdom calls for using wealth astutely in view of the presence of the kingdom and of the coming judgment. Yeah, that's good. Well, we both agree on number one, although we agree differently, although I agree with you right there, too. So, so I, I we, know we I'm came always back bringing you along. You right? are. It's really, I really <laughs> appreciate that. You know, young guy like me just needs somebody to look up to. <laughs> yeah. If I could find somebody who was tall enough to look up to. Oh, just oh. kidding. Uh, so, I knew that was going to happen at some point. In this so let's, let's, and I, I think we also should probably just make another promise here that we should do another episode uh, that deals with Jesus talking here about making friends for yourself with, with worldly. Uh, worldly wealth. We do this all That's the really time, weird. and yeah. we never note them. We never like write them down, and then we don't wind up doing. And we don't them, listen so. to them again enough to remember. Yeah. So we need to. Yeah, we do. We need an assistant just to sit here and take notes. Okay. So, uh, Trevin, how would you preach or teach this passage? Okay. So if I take this parable, man, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. When I'm preaching parables, I love to preach with a lot of stories because, I mean, obviously, Jesus. There's a reason Jesus didn't just tell you his point; he told you a story. Yeah. He he wants to open up the 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 your imagination. To, to what he's telling you. So um, if I'm teaching this text, I'm going to tell stories that lead people to sense the urgency of how we handle possessions in light of the kingdom. I want, I want people to walk away with a, a cultivation of wisdom. I want them to understand the moment that we're living in, the time between the times between Jesus's first coming and his second. When I talk about stewardship, I don't want it to simply be about, you need to give because, you know, God says to give and he'll bless you if you give and your life will be better if you give. I want people to see things in light of eternity, yep. in light of judgment, in light of heaven and hell, these awesome realities, these these uh, uh, um, uh, heavy, weighty truths that, that weigh upon us. So um, I'm going to tell this story in that way. Um, not not going to—I'm definitely going to get some of the humor across in it and some of the sarcasm. It's kind of you know, the way— this manager is a scoundrel in a way, but Jesus is saying, "Hey, the scoundrel does better than you guys." Yeah. You know, when it comes to, to to living in light of of judgment, that that's that's what I want to to get across. To if I'm preaching and teaching this, yeah, I think I, I totally agree with you. I think the only thing um, I might add, um, you know, money isn't the only idol that we struggle with. Um, although it's probably the most foundational, because literally, I mean, money is how we have shelter. It's how we have food. Um, that's why money has always been and is such a great example of. Um, things that can ensnare us, things that can tie us up. Uh, I do think, though, that you, that you want to point out primarily just the, to be a good steward of your possessions, right? But to be a good steward of what God has given you, primarily in what God has given you in the gospel and how that relates to um, you sharing the gospel, you loving people, you treating people the way that you are uh, want to be treated, that you are showing them Christ, that you're pointing them to Christ. I think you have to be a good steward of that primarily. Any Christian anywhere should be a good steward of that. I think Jesus tells his, his disciples that several times. But I also think just being steward of your possessions in that way is, you know, if, with your house, how are you using your house uh, to advance the gospel, to point people to Christ? Are you inviting people in? Are you letting people live there who may need to live there? Are you cooking people meals? Um, those kind of ideas. You want to be a good steward of those possessions, not just dollar amounts and, well, I give 
to church every Sunday or, you know, I gave to this homeless man one time. So I've done my deed, but it's kind of a whole life stewardship. And Jesus tells his disciples earlier, uh, like I mentioned in Luke 12, you know, look, don't, don't grow weary. Don't grow antsy because I'm not back yet. Keep doing what you're doing because that's what you're called to do. You've been put in this place with these possessions for a reason. Uh, so be good stewards of them. And I think you can preach and teach that in a way that's not con- condemnatory at all, but rather is telling people, look, you all have a gift. You all have possessions. You all have things God has given you uh, to use. So no matter how much you think you do or don't have, uh, God has given you much. So do you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, no, I think that I think that's good. I think it's really important for um, for us when we're talking about possessions to make sure we're doing it in a way that is going to challenge, convict people, yeah. especially in our context. So, I all like right. That. Well, thanks for uh, co-hosting with me as always. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Word Matters has been presented by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages but clear for today's audience. Find out more at csbible.com.